Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Longest-running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine, and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Good evening and welcome to uh, Midweek Motorsports. This is Series 13, Episode 20, and I'm Tim Gray in London. Once again this week, no John Hintoff. Uh, don't that be your excuse to switch off, but uh, he says he's gone to Starbucks or something like that. Uh, we have uh, we actually have very few apologies from absence other than John. Uh, right Turn Lover says, uh, tuning in, is there... A racing mountain now still missing in the studio or in the collection. Uh, that's very cryptic. We might find out more about that later. Uh, Wallins, ready for MWM under my Hypersoft blanket. Uh, Simon Hoff, listening in live to MWM for the first time in weeks, dusting down some of the camping gear ready for next month. Uh, Carol Brink, I'm trying to challenge, channel you making some chili verde and bolognese for the return of a rock star. Uh, Chris Suku, no apologies for absence tonight. Just finished another, or a lovely smoked salmon salad. Then prepping for a trip to London to the Clark World Design Week. Ooh, I walked past that the other day. Uh, Rob Jainer is going to be mostly listening in live tonight. First time in ages, he says. Uh, and many, many more of you. So no one actually uh, absent tonight apart from Hindy. Uh, and that's... Uh, includes Nick Damon. Good evening, Nick Damon. Good evening, Tim. Good evening, everybody. Good evening, John, who's not here. Uh, on a packed programme tonight, Nick. We have all the usual features. Excellent. Uh, Shall we get on and uh, start with the first one, then? Go on, then. All the latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. And we start with Two Wheels News. Uh, hurrah, rather than hooray. Okay, uh, and that means uh, we are in the presence of our two-wheeled correspondent, Nick Damon. Hello, I, two wheels, four wheels, our correspondent all. Uh, Where are we starting with a, a, a packed, packed, packed programme of two-wheeled news, both expected lot, and unexpected this week? There's a lot of two-wheeled news this week. Uh you know me, Nick. There's always going to be something unexpected. Uh, but let's start with some you racing. You found the of, of uh, bike racing. Uh, pretty much. Let's start with uh, Le Mans, which was yes. where MotoGP was at the weekend. Uh, what happened there? Indeed, and it's the crashiest race festival of Moto ever. Yes. I reckon that had 107 crashes over the course of, in all three classes over the course of the... Um, uh, the weekend, and there were crashes to a couple of key players in the main MotoGP race as well. Go on. Okay, uh, Okay. so MotoGP um, has been quite um, 
unpredictable up until the last couple of races. We've had a, we've had a, a kind of a, a smorgasbord of winners and second place people and people coming from nowhere and, and doing particularly well. Uh, last um, couple of races have been won by Mark Marquez, though he hasn't got a massive lead or didn't have a massive lead in the championship. And going into the uh, Le Mans Grand Prix of de France at the Bugatti circuits, they aren't doing the full 13 kilometres, the Bugatti circuit. Uh, we had a surprise, or perhaps expected, pole position man in Johan Zarco, the uh, the young Frenchman who was, of course, uh, uh, surprising only because he's running the Yamaha, which 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 certainly this year's Yamaha is a pile of um, rubbish. And uh, though he's one of the slightly older ones, it actually seems better. Oddly, anyway, so everyone thought this is the time that Zarco. This is this is Zarco's time. This is Zarco's time to shine. But doesn't and he, he really crash? Well, no. You know, you see, it's really, really interesting because I would have said, doesn't he normally crash? Apparently, uh, he has only crashed once in a MotoGP. This is, this is a stat from the comms. Uh, he only actually crashed once, and that was the first race he did in MotoGP at the beginning of last year in uh, Qatar. Uh, I think he's had off. And his other DNFs have been for other reasons then, have they? Yes, they've been for other problems and that sort of stuff. Uh, and he has. So apparently he's only actually done a, perhaps only a crash that's in his fault. But they said he's only crashed once. And we all kind of thought, oh, he's always falling off. Anyway, so off we go into Poles. He does make a particularly good start. Uh, and it's it's Jorge Lorenzo, um, the man who has so far in a year and a bit made a complete horlicks of, uh, of being a riding a Ducati, much as most people who think they can ride bikes do end up doing. Uh, was out in front as he has. I think he's actually led probably six or seven races over the course of the season and a half. Uh, and it's always the same. He leads, he leads, he leads, and finally gets overtaken. He fades back to nowhere. I think this time he faded back to six. It wasn't quite as nowhere as it could be. Um, and he was uh, out of front, and then they had uh, Zarco following him, and they had um, behind him was uh, the Davizioso, and also Marquez, and even Rossi was kind of doing a bit better than we thought it would. Anyway, the first major surprise was when uh, Davizioso threw it down the road, because the one thing that uh, Dovi doesn't do is fall off. He's the man who just consistently gets points, tick, 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 points, occasional win, and that kind of slowly, slowly catchy monkey concept ends up giving him a chance at the championship. And this is now two DNFs in a row and effectively scuppered his chances already, even though only about six rounds down. Of course, in the last race, he was unfortunately, Jerez, he was unfortunately taken off in a weird uh, coming together with Lorenzo and yes. Pedroza. So he's now not finished twice. And he, he just had a simple folding of the front end. So anyway, so more excitement. We thought, well, okay, now let's see what's going to happen next. Uh, Lorenzo's out front. Um, Zarco's going to try and catch up. And then Zarco fell off. And uh, much like when um, uh, Senna or Rubens Barrichello used to break down the Brazilian Grand Prix, you could effectively hear the entire atmosphere of the race disappear in one slidey moment. Um, and that was kind of coupled up with the fact that just after that, we saw um, Mark Marquez into the lead. Um, Danilo Petrucci tried to chase him, uh, uh, didn't really manage to do it. Um, Valentino Rossi got a, 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 came in third, and that's how they finished. So the last 15, 20 laps weren't the most exciting because it kind of had the excitement taken out of it by people crashing so uh, uh honorable mention cal Crutcher had a massive high side uh, in qualifying and that she had to stay in hospital overnight but got back on the bike in the race i think he was eighth in the end uh which is not bad going but the net effect of all this is that marquez after a wobbly start is now leading by a comfortable amount and is also in form and no one can put together a challenge um the race falls off the yamaha's awful um over a race hence the reason that Rossi is beating Vinales because it's not about being fast it's about being clever and keeping the thing in shape um, but Rossi isn't going to win the world championship he probably isn't going to win a race you know, he's just picking up 
scraps of the podium and other people make mistakes and so it's, it's again it's looking quite um yeah quite depressing as far as uh, a competitive championship though individual races will always be good as they always are in MotoGP. Well, you mentioned Carl Crutchlow and that was the uh, MotoGP story if not the motorsport story that dominated social media on Saturday mm. uh, because those pictures were quite spectacular uh, mm. and then on Sunday uh, there was a different uh, MotoGP story. There was Moto3 um, and the world well probably the best the luckiest best most remarkable save ever i don't i don't know the name of the, of the boys involved but uh one of the bikes as you know anyone who's watched moto 3 or even the one two fives before you know effectively they all go round in the train so there's normally there's less than 25 bikes in a row you've been severely let down i think this is quite early on to the second or third lap in and the guy in seventh or something like that just lost it coming around the corner and unfortunately when he lost it uh he was down flat and then he of course was a bike immediately immediately behind him and the bike uh rode over the top of the prone bike so he hit it he hit it straight onto the side ferry so he used it as a kind of a ramp that catapulted him into the gravel which he then just kind of motocrossed out of so he he hopped over the bike motocrossed out the gravel somehow and kept on going and has probably had about 74 billion hits on uh, on various uh, sharing sites it was Enea bastianini who uh, was the one who crashed and uh, Yappa Cornfile, who was the one uh, doing the street hawking impression. I do get the impression that young Yappa may never, ever be able to top that. And that's what he remembered for it. He'll be the kind of person, if they have a kind of a never mind the buzzcocks for sport, he'll be the man who brought out the lineup as the bloke who managed to do that 24 years ago. And some portly, slightly injured man from all the time to fall off the bike will just smile knowingly at the, at the, uh, at the guys who go, oh, that's you, well done. And what happened after that? And it'd be nothing. Uh, Coolfile has done uh, some motocross in the past, uh, so he said when he saw the bike in front of him, uh, he knew he could make a jump over it. Uh, but what went wrong after that for him? I don't know. I'm honest, I don't know. What were we talking about uh, in relation to motorbikes the other week? Uh, uh, airbags and accidents. Airbags. Off. So when he landed in the gravel, his airbags exploded. Ah, that would make things quite awkward. Yes. Uh, he was trying to ride like the Michelin man yes I just stayed on the gas the only problem was my penis hurt a lot in the last lap <laughs> oh that's two then that's that's double um, uh, racing uh, drivers and riders with issues with their nether regions apparently that was Sir, apparently Sergei Sorokin who claimed of having a difficult posterior which we all, all thought was bottom apparently it was down to a, um, a crotch strap issue and he was um being crushed in an area you don't want to be crushed in during the race. More on Formula One later on with Nick Damon. Uh, but uh, we're not leaving MotoGP yet because they've been testing uh, this week in Barcelona. They have, indeed. Um, and they've tested on a kind of a different layout of the track. They've been fiddling with the... Uh, uh, um, unfortunately, I, I feel really bad because I, I forgot the name of the, the drive, rider who died in Moto2 a couple of years ago. Um, and um, he, uh, sorry, and he, um, uh, they they changed the track because of that accident. And they took out some of the speed in the final corner. They don't actually use the final um, section like uh, F1 does. So they they used to sweep around the top corner rather than going through the in and out of the chicane. Now they did use the F1 track, I think, 
possibly or a similar version of it last year or two, the two years ago. But they've now effectively gone tried testing in, in the same route they used to have, which is the very, very fast final corner. So effectively, rather than turning down the hill and going through the uh, F1 chicane, they just carry on going around the corner as F1 used to do six, seven years ago, which is a very, very fast run onto the straight. Uh, and coupled with the fact that it's resurfaced, apparently they were five seconds faster than they were the last time they'd used that um, that uh, at layout. And faster was always Maverick Vinales in the Yamaha, because obviously Yamahas are great. Nope, they're not. Uh, Yamahas can be great over a single lap. They're just not any good over race distance. Uh, and second was Johan Zarco in the Yamaha, because Yamahas are great. Anyway, you know, you, you're getting the point. Yeah. Um, quite impressively, fourth fastest was uh, Carl Crutch, though, who I imagine would still be pretty, pretty bruised after his high side just three days previously. Um, you know, tellingly, Mark Marquez couldn't be bothered. He was sixth. Um, and, and the rest of the field all, all pounded around do some uh, uh basically it was a Pirelli test to uh make sure sorry michelin test to do a michelin test to uh make sure they got the tires right because again of course the uh, word of the day boss though is the resurfacing and they wanted to make sure with the resurfacing they'd be able to have uh, tires that lasted and gave no issues uh and the tires seem to be fine uh so we will move away from moto gp and on to uh british superbikes which weren't in action at the weekend however they did have a uh, open test at the end of last week on thursday and friday at snetterton uh and it didn't go particularly well for shaky burn did it no i knew nothing about this uh i must admit until an hour ago something else i didn't even i, I realized he was a kentish man i didn't realize until i read the report he's from the isle of sheppy which, if anyone who knows yes. anything about Kent and the Isle of Sheppey would know, there's not many people from the Isle of Sheppey, and those that do come to the Isle of Sheppey, on the whole, don't actually leave the island at any point. Um, it's famous for mud flaps and uh, mud flaps and lays down. I think I, I think I lived most of my young young life within 15 miles of the Isle of Sheppey. I remember going there once and instantly regretting it. Um, and you never yes, met anyone who came off of the island. No, genuinely no. Um, <laughs> now I know Shaky it, Burns. It's got that horrible you. bridge, hasn't it? That, yes. Um, that you can't see anything on when it gets foggy. This may be an apocryphal story. So um, if it is, you can shoot me down on everything else. Before the bridge was built after the Second World War, the only way you could get off the Isle of Sheppard was by almost like a kind of a rowboat. It wasn't even really a proper ferry. And it was said, and this could be just a terrible thing other fellow Kentish people say, that the uh, the average IQ in Sheppey was seven to nine points below the rest of the country due to the inbreeding because there was a small, such a small gene pool that never got mixed into. If anyone knows the truth of that, then uh, at Radio Le Mans or at RSL Studio. But now they have, but now they have the bridge. I'm sure they're brighter than anybody, and they have a marvelous mix going on. Also, if you want to know what the Isle of Sheppey is, it's, it's in Kent. It's just not. It's in part of Kent. It's a little island above Sittingbourne. So if you're not from the UK, you can look up those those geographical areas. Anyway, Sittingbourne's so not a nice place either, by the way. Realistically, you well, know, it does I have a cart track nearby. Does the whole of that part of North? You know, actually, Kent. If you say, "Oh, well, I come from Kent," you go, "Oh, marvellous!" The wheel. Think of Seven Oaks and Tunbridge and Tunbridge Wells. Well, they might think Cathedral about stairs, Canterbury, Herne Bay. They might think the fun times at Margate. Oh, I'm going on holiday at Dover, or I'm going to go to Ramsgate or Folkestone. Well, not quite so good, but yeah, the North Kent bit, the bit that, that bit by the by the Midway, not so good. You're thinking Chatham and well, Chatham. Yorkshire. My passport was place of birth, so yeah, afraid so. Uh, moving on, uh, what happened to Shaky? He had a massive accident and really hurt himself. Um, I think he broke his neck. Um, he's damaged his vertebrae. I don't believe there's any paralysis, though he's having to be completely immobilised at the moment to make sure uh, there is no danger of that. And they are doing some reconstructive surgery on his spine. Um, he, I think he's had two operations, the most recent one yesterday. And the word is it's going to be a long 
long-term recovery. So he will not be out of the next round or probably he may well not be out again this season. And when a man's 41, you wonder how much do you want to come back and race motorcycles? Well, only shaking quite a lot, but yeah, sometimes you get a wake-up call and injury like that. Um, obviously, I hope he gets over it 100%, but it's, it's not looking good. And obviously, it's good news for... Well, in, a, in a certain way, it's good news for Leon Haslam and his, and his, and his rivals because obviously one of the favourites will, will not be able to do enough rounds to, to compete this year. Uh, yesterday's surgery was successful and uh, the fractures in his back have been stabilised. Uh, he remains in the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital uh, and there will be further ongoing treatment. Yeah, it's um. Obviously, we all wish him all the best. It's um. It's it's, it's very unlucky. I mean, we were just talking about how it's rare to hurt yourself on motorbikes, but when you do have an accident, you can really hurt. I mean, I get the impression that if you've done back and neck injuries, he's obviously certainly been high side off the bike and slammed on the ground in the wrong angle. But uh, I haven't seen any picture of the accident, and it'd be unlikely we'll be near a free test. So, um, shaky, all the best. Hope you get well soon, mate. His BSB teammate had a much better weekend, though. Glenn Irwin uh, went uh, went home, as it were, uh, and took part in the Northwest 200, where not only did he get pole position, uh, but he also won both the superbike races on his Ducati. Yes, and I uh, I didn't see much of that. I I know that. Um there was some complaint. Well, complaint. Michael Dunlop, who obviously would be a big favourite there, being the uh, the local lad. Another, another local lad was a bit upset by his tyres, and the tyres weren't working. But uh, no, it's, uh, that Northwest 200, it, they're, they're just, it's just a practice for uh, the TT in a week's time or so, isn't it, really? <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, next week on Midweek Motorsport, we'll be doing a proper preview of the TT. Right. Look forward to that. Uh now, Nick Damon, apparently at the weekend, you watched Formula E. Yes. And that was I back did. in Berlin. It was at the Tempelhof Airport, which of course isn't an airport anymore. It was the airport back many, many I think it was actually the airport where the Berlin airlift went and took place on. So it's quite famous. Um, but they've converted it into a, into a lovely sort of parkland area. And obviously they still have the runways, but it is it, no longer any planes flying there at all and they build a temporary circuit for formula e which was um what's the word for it uh not very interesting uh, i think um very interesting if you if you are an abd audi fan because they got a one two with uh, uh oh, what is that was it was i've forgotten abs first it's christian abs christian yeah, and from Lucas Degrassi, first and second. Um, doesn't really, the, the key winner out of all that was um, Jean-Eric Verne, who extended his championship in the Tachita. Um, Sam Bird didn't qualify too well, picked up a couple of places. And yes, yeah, so we, we trundle on. I still I just don't understand Formula E. There's so many things I don't understand about Formula E. One thing I don't understand is why they do all that for just a single day. Why, they have, why don't they do double headers? Explain me as to him. Why don't they do double headers? They do do some double headers, don't they? They do. Well, uh, I think they've done about one a year. I can't remember the last one. You know, London it's, it's, had them, and New York had them, and when they went to uh, Montreal, that had a double header, didn't it? I kind of think they all should be double headers. Just make anyway. I'm not first up. Alejandro Hag, who has the uh, the zeitgeist of motorsport at the moment, so I'm, I'm not going to argue with him because obviously everything he does is a great idea, and that includes all his great ideas for spicing up racing for the Gen Two cars. Well, tell us about one of those ideas. Um, how old are you, Tim? Not as old as you. Did you ever have a Super Nintendo? No. Ah, you missed out. Super Nintendo. I was a Mega Drive person. Well, oh dear. Uh, so back in the uh, back in the 
a day, but about the early mid nineties. Uh, that was when we we first enjoyed the presence of of Mario Kart. Have you played Mario Kart? I played Mario Kart. Now on Mario Kart, obviously the you know, it's, it's all your carts are supposedly the same, but you can get hop ups, which obviously I suppose is like changing a drivetrain. And obviously, there are little special power-ups you can have. At the moment, we have a little power-up called Fan Boost in Formula E, where someone, enough, if enough people phone or, or text, whatever it is, or, or if you manage to motivate your social media or manage to get enough Russian bots to do it, uh, you can get yourself a, a little power booster for one part of the lap. Well, this isn't happening. No, we are going full-on Mario Kart next year, theoretically. Uh, and that is that they're going to have a separate bit of road. So if you imagine you've got the main, the, the main straight, then you can go out wide, and there's a separate bit of road which is going to have apparently it's going to have yellow chevrons on it. Though I may have made that dub. <laughs> and when you go over the yellow chevrons, you genuinely will get a power boost. Right. In your electric car, you get an extra thirty horsepower for interestingly about four laps apparently uh, and you will be, everyone will have to do it at twice the race so twice through the race but not but not they will be getting these extra four laps of power so effectively you, the idea is you, you you'll tactically use them to overtake or not i mean you can't have them at the start or the end but in the middle and you'll have these four laps of power which you've done by, by going wide in the first place and then and obviously there'll be a kind of a, a do 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 sound and then that sort of thing and, then, and i believe they are thinking of having also um you know uh, green and blue turtle shells uh, bananas and uh, the stars as well will be coming in future seasons of formula e, but they're starting with a simple speedy power up um I'm not overly sure what's wrong with normal racing, but apparently Formula E don't like doing it. Uh, what else are they doing that's uh, rather unconventional? Starting well, I don't next know. Tell year, me, to running for the next ten seasons. Go on, tell me. They're going to go to Saudi Arabia. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was thinking it was far more. But you no, know, that's that, that's absolutely great news. Obviously, unless they get well, that's, that's fair enough. You, you, know, you, you can have female drivers in Saudi Arabia now, so it's fine. If Simone Deal Silvestre got a drive in Formula E, she'd be allowed to drive this in the racetrack as well. Um, yes, and and they've gone there because obviously uh, Saudi Arabia is at the forefront of of green initiatives, or option B, it gave them a massive amount of cash. Um, I mean, fair. Saudi Arabia's got as much right to host a race as anybody else, but it's you know it, it, it isn't exactly the you know, you'd say where they were looking to be on as far as the the green credentials. And it'd be interesting. though they get ten years because obviously one of the interesting things about Formula E is they've already had about twenty three venues in their uh, five year history, so they are churning venues at a, at a rapid rate. So um, the ten year contract is is good news for them, and and you know, I'm sure it'd be an excellent race. Uh, and who has announced that they'll be driving in Formula E next season? Oh, it's Felipe Massa, isn't it? It is. Yeah. He actually gave it away uh, in Barcelona on the grid when he was talking to Martin Brundle uh, mm. because it wasn't actually supposed to be made public until the following week. Uh, but yes, Felipe Massa uh, has decided that his uh, next competitive motorsport will be Formula E. Good luck to him. He's a good little lad. He's a good little racer. Um, you know, it'll be a bit slower, so everything happened a bit easily, so it's all right then. Uh, as you say, jean luc Verne leads that championship. Can you see anyone catching him? I know we've no. got a few races left, but matter, it's all it? over, one thing, is it? One, well, one thing Verne's done, he's been super consistent, which helps. He's taken the wins, we can take the wins, and he's and when he's had to trundle around in fifth, he's trundled around in fifth. He's not had that variance of uh, win or nothing. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. There's been some good, there have been some interesting races in Formula E this year, it, but it's 
it's still a difficult format and i think that they they you know they they they, they swallow their own hyperbole a bit but um you know i'm still looking at the next year even with even with super mario kart i'm still really looking forward to it because it's not gonna have the car changes and without the car swaps i think we'll start to see a bit more pure racing and perhaps a bit more positive push for, towards electric racing but i keep they need to understand you don't have to do everything different just for the sake of doing something different uh let's move on to something more british now hurrah uh thruxton yes the, touring cars did. the touring Last. car lap record at Thruxton mm. has been held by Ivan Muller since 2002. Blimey. Uh, back in the day. In a Vauxhall, wouldn't it? In a Vauxhall, a works Vauxhall on BF Goodridge tyres. Uh, now, the following season, Dunlop took over as a tyre supplier, and since then, that lap record has never been challenged until this year. It was Matt Neal, wasn't it? Got Matt Neal, who not only broke the qualifying lap record on Saturday, but he also brought, broke the lap, the race lap record in the first race on Sunday, which he then went on to win. I haven't seen, I didn't see that, but how many people got their camera wrong and blew up the tyres this time? That always happens. None. Wow. Wave of sensibility spread through the paddock, or did uh, obviously, or the fact the cars are going fast makes it that Dunham has developed a better and new tyre. Well, Dunlop use the same uh, compound that they use in the European Le Mans series, don't they? For touring cars, yes. It's, it's obviously the construction that's a problem with um, on the front left, isn't it? With uh, with going around the ridiculously fast, virtually circular Thruxton. Yes, uh, where where you don't uh, don't break. Uh, well, you do break twice, but that's it. Um, and uh, one driver said, uh, "You break here, you break here. Here, you don't even breathe." <laughs> well, you go faster, obviously. It's more aerodynamic not to breathe. <laughs> And uh, while we're staying in Britain, uh, Cadwell Park was hosting yeah. the uh, HSCC at the weekend uh, and some vintage Formula Ford action, uh, but not the right sort of vintage Formula Ford. No, I mean, I only saw the, um, the aftermath. It seems like a nasty accident. It must have knocked off a fuel pipe because it was a massive blaze when the guy managed to escape unhurt from uh, this is the accident involving uh, Nelson Rowe and Cameron Jackson uh, in the second uh, historic Formula Ford Championship race of the weekend. Uh, they collided at... Uh, sorry, it wasn't uh, Cameron Jackson, it was Callum uh, Grant. Um, they collided at high speed and uh, Rowe flipped through the air. As you say, speed, leading... Yeah to some uh, quite spectacular uh, photographs. And uh, then his Crossley 20F, told you it was a vintage car, uh, mm. burst into flames. Mm. Um, now, the other driver involved in the accident uh, ran to his aid. That was Callum Grant. And with the help of two spectators, managed oh. to roll the car uh, the right way up. Um and uh, extract the driver from the car. Now, my question is, how were two spectators closer to the incident than the marshals? So how did the two spectators get over the crash fence so quickly? Have you seen to Cadwell Park? It's probably waist high. Um, oh, that's it. I've been thinking Alton Park. Yes, fair enough. It's Cadwell Park. Yeah, that's quite easy, actually. Well, I don't know. It sounds like there was some, uh, some uh, you know, some of these meetings are not resplendent with marshals are they? they've got the minimum number so it could be a while to get to one well every marshal post has to be manned surely 
Yeah, but if it's man, yeah, yes, but obviously it's how manned it is and who it's manned by. Yeah, because some marshals aren't the sprintiest, are they? I think we'll leave that there <laughs> and move on to Formula One. Hooray! Uh, the glamour, <laughs> is that bad? The glamour and elegance of Monaco is what we are going to see. There's nothing more glamorous than Monaco. In fairness, it does look really nice if the sun's out. And it's a lovely, and it's very, very interesting qualifying session. Obviously, there's a race after, which is less interesting, but it's a very interesting qualifying session. What are we going to... uh, Well, what are we going to see uh, that we haven't seen for a while at Monaco? Red Bull on pole? Is that what you're looking at? Or are you, are you, are you, Not yet. We'll come on to that in a minute. Oh, you're right. You've been, a little bit, you've been too cryptic for me. Go on, then. Grid Girls. Oh, blimey. Oh, yes. Because this is the thing. Monaco is, um, you know, interesting now. Not not unique as of next year, but was unique till um, uh, this year. In that it doesn't pay a sanctioning fee, and it does it all its own way. I think it even... Does it still insist on having Monaco TV filming it as well? Uh, no, they've stopped that. Thank goodness for that, because that was a disaster most weeks. Um, so they uh, can do their own thing. I think they, they just, when they were told there couldn't be grid girls, um, they went, no, that's not happening. And Prince Rainier, oh, and Prince Rainier has been dead many years. Uh, Prince, whoever it is now, Albert. Um, yes, um, decided to uh, say, no, nope, we're going to have them. That's it. They're going to be grid girls. Now, there's kind of a bit of a toing and froing about there might be the grid kids as well, and the grid girls weren't actually holding the official F1 boards, but kind of a sub-board supplied by... Um, uh, monogasks but uh, yeah there's going to be girls in the, and, and I'm sure no I, it'll either be, people may make a comment for the sake of it or it might be ignored uh, to see which way it goes uh, all the talk this week has been about who will partner Sebastian Vettel at Ferrari uh, next season well, I mean, obviously, because we're not surprising, because one of the one of the potentials is, um, of course, a man who is genuinely having his home Grand Prix. Because a lot of drivers go, "Oh, this is my home from home Grand Prix," because they live in the Principality. And I suppose, in many ways, Nico Rosberg it might have been his home Grand Prix because he never really lived anywhere else. But he was obviously officially German by nationality. But of course, we are having an actual monogasque driver in this Grand Prix. So you know, uh, and, and who and, would that be? It is I, Leclerc. <laughs> so Charles is going to be running in his own in his home race, and I've, I'm sure there hasn't been a monogasque since the early fifties uh, in uh, in F1. Oh, that's not true because Olivier Beretta was monogasque. Was he? Yes. Did you do F1? He, he did, didn't for he? Oh. And he actually qualified. <laughs> I believe he did qualify. Yeah. No, because he was doing it in the era when there were like 71 cars turning up and most of them sponsored by interesting pasta manufacturers. Um, okay, I'm I, sorry about Olivier Beretta. I completely forgot that. So it hasn't been a, a monogast driver since Olivier Beretta back in 1990. Um, but, um, yeah. Nothing um, did qualify. He finished eighth in 1994. Well, he would have got points if it hadn't been... If, if it would have got points been 1994, yes. That's right. And if it hadn't been, that wasn't the way the rules worked. He would have got... You know, amazing. He would have won if it hadn't been the fact that seven cars in front of him. Um, yes, well, that's... Uh, in fairness, I'm, I'm, I'm... Well, there hasn't been a monogas driver for nearly 20 years, Tim, or over 20 years. So, uh, and certainly not one with, with so much buzz about him as young Mr. Leclerc. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, and obviously now there's a question about what Ferrari are going to do next, uh, next year. And are they going to... Um, Get rid of Kimi Räikkönen, who, despite my predictions within the uh, uh, 
F1 preview on uh, on Radio Le Mans, um, Radio Show Limited and Radio Le Mans. I kind of um, actually, unfortunately, I think he was going to have an awful year and he's been doing quite well, but just been very unlucky so far. Um, or are they going to promote Charles, which is which is very quick in, in one year, or are they going to look somewhere else? So um, to, uh, maybe to, to Danny Ricardo. But uh, what's the latest rumor you've heard? Because I I kind of heard that what's happened is everyone everyone's gone to watching brief at the moment because um, Hamilton still hasn't signed his contract with Mercedes, and they're waiting for that to happen first. Then people will decide about other things. Well, there's a question either yesterday or today. To uh, uh, it must have been today in the press conference. Uh, where uh, Hamilton uh, was asked if he could uh, be sitting alongside Vettel at Ferrari, uh, to which he replied, uh, no, because Sebastian's got a veto on that. And Sebastian said, no, I don't. Mm, there we are, you see. Um, yeah, well, I don't think that um, Hamilton wants to be at Ferrari at the moment anyway. Um, he just wants to get more money out of Mercedes. So, and I'm pretty sure the Mercedes will pay him more money. So that's we're just in, in, a, in a normal cash-based negotiation, not a will-I-won't-I negotiation. Uh, then they need to, then it's really what happened to Danny Rick. And you know, the, yeah, interestingly, Charles's um, emergence actually causes problems for Danny Rick because obviously, if Ferrari were to sign up Danny, they'd have to sign him on a couple of year contract at least, which would mean that they would have therefore have to they'd be blocking uh, Charles Leclerc for for two more years. Mm-hmm. Um, when perhaps they'd probably only like to give it give it this year and perhaps like one other year and see if he's worthwhile bringing up. So do they give uh, Reichen another year, another year? Um, or do they think no, he's costly, he's not what we want, and, and and sign someone else in a very short term contract, which is hard to do. So um, yeah, they have a nice conundrum, but kind of a conundrum nonetheless about what they do. You know, because so far we've seen you know a couple of average races from Leclerc and a couple of very good ones when he's got to circuits he's known. From my memory, he didn't actually do particularly well in F2 in uh, at his home race in Monaco. I think things went against when he had a problem, a crash, and qualifying. I think. So, very rusty brain here so he'll be looking to put make amends at home and uh you know he's in the salva so he's not going to win he, and scoring points is very difficult unless you can pull out a miracle qualifying so he'll be judged against marcus erickson and judged about something around him and if he can make q2 that'll be pretty good and uh, you know he does seem to be the real deal he doesn't seem to settle down um but uh, ferrari also make decisions very quickly on what they're going to do but my guess is that'll be just after the summer break if Ferrari were to sign Leclerc, surely that's bad for Ricardo because it that's very Ricardo. much limits his options of where to go. If Ferrari signed Leclerc, then Ricardo basically either stays at Red Bull or theoretically possibly goes to Mercedes. But then there's a very, very good chance that Mercedes will stick with Bottas if he carries on doing what he's doing, which is, you know, not being as rubbish as he was the first two races, but being quite consistent, actually, you know, without some elements of bad luck, he would actually be, you know, in second in the championship, only a couple of points behind Hamilton. So, you know, it's um, an interesting an interesting conundrum. Um, but see, one of the things, of course, one of the advantages to Mercedes of signing Ricciardo is if you assume that as uh, we go on, the teams will get closer and closer and closer, you know, because I know there's a bit of a, 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 a regs change, but most of the difference between the teams at the moment has been horsepower. And as soon as Ferrari got their engine on par with Mercedes, they said they were much, much closer. And obviously um, the same happened with Red Bull and uh, Renault are getting closer every year. So one of the advantages of them signing Ricciardo is it actually reduces the quality of the Red Bull team. 
because you know they'll, they'll yeah, they bring in science or something else who won't be as good in the first years. So it's kind of a double whammy by signing by signing the star. Yeah, it's like signing the star striker just before a cup final. Um, it's not that so much that you want him; it's that you want to deny him to be in the other team as well. So there's a lot of machinations to go on. Before we leave Charles Leclerc, what was he driving last weekend? Oh, oh, he was driving an old Grand Prix Alpha. 1955 Alfa Romeo 750 Competizione. See, I know all the Alfa Romeo stories. Uh, what was Marcus Ericsson driving? Another old Alfa. 1932 Grand Premio Tipo B. No. Any, any, was any other Sauber drivers driving an Alfa Romeo? Uh, there are just the two Sauber drivers at the moment. Uh, but Alfa Romeo did have a very good weekend, didn't they? All right, help me out. What do they won? Well, ninety years after they first won it, uh, they not oh, only one million million. Yeah, they won. They well, they, they won it. They 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 were yes. It's not as competitive now. It's more. There was a show show event in it. Yes, they won the million million and um, finished second and also finished third. So you can't argue with that. It was the uh, Alfa Romeo sixty fifteen hundred GS Testa Fissa uh, that uh, came first. Uh, second place went to the 60 1500 Supersport from 1928. Uh, so it has to be said, you know, when people talk about the long-term reliability of Alfa Romeo, that's proven wrong because they came second with a car that's 90 years old. So, you know, yes. I think you'll find that actually you just it, stick your money in Alfa Romeo. And in third, the Alfa Romeo 60 1750 SS Zagato. It just sounds expensive. <laughs> Uh, Even the standard one is the Scarto one. That's always more. Ask, Alfred, ask Aston Martin owners. Yes. So, uh, good weekend for them there. They won't uh, repeat that uh, in Monaco this weekend, obviously. Well, no, because they haven't got three cars. They can't. Oh, actually, they do have, of course, there is sponsorship on the Ferraris for the Alfa Romeo. So, you, if you actually went, what cars? They have got four cars carrying their branding in certain ways. Uh, you mentioned... Uh, when we were talking about Ferrari earlier, that uh, in fact it was last week, you mentioned it, not early today, uh, about their wing mirrors. Yes, they've been amended. Now, oddly, um, after building wing mirrors, um, which had eyebrows last time out in Barcelona with a little kind of stick, because obviously mm-hmm. they, they, it was a support, they needed the support, they needed that support from above, yes. that eyebrow support, because that, that was really important. Thing. It was intrinsic to the safety, Tim. If they didn't have the eyebrow support with the hanger, the whole thing would be pointless. Well, uh, might just well, fall they, off. Yeah, or explode. Uh, oddly, they or have their wing mirrors. Downforce. Stop it. Um, they have their wing mirrors again, man, on the halo, exactly the same as they were in Barcelona, just taking the eyebrows off. So, look at that. Obviously, they passed the stress test. Isn't that lucky? Isn't it? They they must have strengthened them in some way. Uh, <laughs> what other... Uh, in what other ways is the Ferrari testing the limits of legality? Well, there are... It's all got a bit rumoury, hasn't it? Can we start with the oil? Okay, so the, the once again, um, Mercedes... Have, uh, the oil burn has been a massive thing for the last year, year and a half. And the idea is if you burn oil as well as fuel, you get more power. There's a couple of reasons for that. The composition of the oil gives a bigger bang, but also, of course, you are limited on the fuel flow. So you have a maximum amount of fuel flow. So if you can burn something else, um, you get more power. And 
there were a number of times it's been done. Certainly, it was done during qualifying. And uh, you know, the, the, so the FIA has, has, has sequentially uh, clamped down on how much oil you can use during a race and how much oil you can use per hundred kilometres. And it's still quite a lot compared to road cars, but it's you know, I think it's down to 0.6 of a litre per hundred kilometres, which is a huge amount, but not you know, for road car, but not not car. Um, and what's turned around now is Mercedes have asked a question saying, um, hang on, you know the oil you're allowed to burn? That is, that's, that's the whole engine, isn't it? That includes the oil that's that's in the turbo and lubricating the turbo, doesn't it? And Charlie White's gone, yep, yep, it obviously does. It's part of the engine, includes the you know the, all the oil in the turbo. You can't burn lots of that. And the inference is that they think that possibly Ferrari have been burning oil, which has come through the turbo uh, and offset it in that way which hence the reason to see the clouds of smoke when the car when the when the uh, ferrari fires up so they're trying to think there's some element that of oil burn has been done by ferrari or may have been done by ferrari or might be done by ferrari uh using the turbo as an excuse but they can't do that anymore so they have to reduce their oil burn if they were doing it and we've no idea if they were doing it or not and that's number one thing now your specialist subject batteries Yes, this is very clever, isn't it? Number two thing. This is so clever that uh, according to Automotive and Sport, the FIA are struggling to understand how it works. Yes, in fairness, moi too. But what they're basically, let's just put it in layman's terms. When you have power from your battery, the amount of power you can deliver from your battery is limited you're not allowed to send to, to buy um, electronics and monitoring and everything else. And you can only give, I think it's 160 horsepower in total. The rumor is, again, a rumor is that Ferrari have found a ridiculously clever way of bypassing or overcharging or overboosting without being seen or with not spiking the traces just specifically in qualifying. So they've got a qualifying mode on the power invert, whatever it may be, that is giving them an extra 20 horsepower in short bursts. Obviously, in qualifying, it's very, very useful. I assume there's a reason why I'm not using it in, in the race, and maybe maybe all sorts of things do reliability, heat, heat exchange, or just the fact that can, there's a different way of monitoring things. So the, the idea is that they have been able to get a lot of extra power in qualifying uh, by this clever electrical trick, which I also, Tim, do not understand. However, I... I the concept if you were able to do it and of course one of the things that has been very noticeable this year is that ferrari have looked very very good in qualifying um you know the, the, the we've kind of had a rotation of mercedes being fastest in the race and, and ferrari fa- fast in qualifying and ferrari fastest in the race it's almost flipped around now so that mercedes are relying on their race pace to make up for not qualifying as well as the ferraris so if ferrari are doing something clever with the power and that would be a really clever idea to do that and i and i you know after Half half me going that's very naughty, and half me going that's blooming clever. Um, but it does seem that someone has now said that, that thinks they may have done it. Now it could be complete rubbish. It could be it's not possible. It could be it's not made up. Who knows? It might even be that whoever moaned about it had worked out how to do it, and then thought, well, perhaps other people are doing it. So let's you know, they worked out how to do it, but weren't doing it. And rather than develop it, I thought let's just make sure no one else is doing it. Um, but. You know, it's the old. You have some incredibly intelligent people in F1, and they will find a way around the rules, the loopholes. And this actually, if they are doing, is, is is less loophole hopping than cheating. So if they are doing, that's a bit naughty. The turbo oil thing was just making the most of the regulations, which is fine as far as I'm concerned. So it'll be interesting to see what 
what will come of it. And if, you, if as you say, the FIA are a bit confused by it because they haven't got a PhD in physics, then it may well be that very little will come about it, but it'll just stop. It'll be one of those things that stop being done. You know, they'll just stop doing it and everyone will stop talking about it. Now, imagine you were in your early 20s. That's a very long time ago, but yes, okay, I'm giving it a go. And you're a racing driver. Well, then I'd be, yeah, it might be, okay. But results haven't really been going your way. And this sounds very familiar. Five seasons ago, you only finished fifteenth in Formula Three. Right. And four seasons ago, you managed to get to tenth. Right, it's going the right way. Uh, but the same season, or the following season, you did uh, Formula Renault three point five and uh, only finished eleventh. Right. And then the season after that, you did GP two and were sixteenth. It's not going well, really, is it? I've obviously, I've obviously got a lot, a lot of money to burn, so I've obviously got a rich dad or a good sponsor. Excellent. You might imagine that your route into Formula One with results like that might be completely closed. Mm-hmm. Mm, there's always one way, isn't there? You mentioned that rich dad. Yes. Has he so got a rich what, dad? What if... It, are we talking about a guy called with my name? Nick, Yes. Uh, yeah. Although his rich dad is called John. Mm. Uh, the so surname of Latifi. John Latifi runs uh, Safina Foods, which is a right. big uh, Canadian food uh, uh, company. Who's uh, richer, him or Lance Stroll? Uh, uh, that's a good question. I don't Canadian know the answer to that one. Um, mm-hmm. Answer the postcard. What has uh, John Latifi done this week? Um, many things, but of key interest, he is rumoured to have invested £200 million, I think, could be yours, into McLaren. And what did that so, money get him? Some shares. 10%? Share on the ball? 10%. I mean, they're both two billion, are they? Um, yes. Obviously, uh, um, McLaren is not time, you know. Because no, McLaren are mostly owned by the Bahraini royal family and Mansour OJ, so it's a, a Middle East consortium, really, just based in working. Yes. Um, so now they've got Canadian cash. Hmm. I can't really see Latifi getting into, getting a drive, though, to be honest. Uh, he is currently a nominated development driver for a Formula One team. Is he? Yeah, uh, Force India. Force India is correct. Just, just follow the check. Is he, is he, is he involved in some way in paying bail money as well? <laughs> He's a bail bondsman. Uh, I'm not going to answer that. Uh, as you <laughs> mentioned, uh, the uh, uh, Bahraini uh, royal family uh, own 56 percent of McLaren. And Mansour AJ, uh, through the tag group, owns 14%. Mm-hmm. And now Mr. Latifi, John, as he's known, owns 10. Yeah, so that means so it's me and you two. We've got 26 now. There's 20, 20% left. Oh, okay. Uh, do we think Nicholas Latifi is going to get a drive at McLaren for $200 Not in their F1 car. Not in their F1 car. No. You might get, you might get a test. You might get to play at Barcelona, but you won't get a drive. He's not good enough. What's uh, Pierre Gasly done 50 times this week? Relive the accident with Roman Grosjean. That's correct. 
Oh, and there you know was what, so was much guess. scope for you that to go horribly off the uh, <laughs> off the off the scale Literally, of decency that there. Was just a guess. And and what has he found out? Does he wish he'd gone twelfth, uh, or wish he'd gone left, or wish he'd gone right, or what was it? He still thinks that it was Grosjean's fault. Hmm. Um, by the way, we have an update from our uh, over, our, our North American financial correspondent. Yes. Uh, Lawrence Stroll was ranked 55. This is Shay, by the way. Was ranked 55 of the wealthiest Canadians in 2017, worth 2.04 billion. The Tifi's not even in the top hundred. Wow. So, so there we go. He's 200 um, uh, million dollars poorer now. Well, no, because I won't. I won't go off his wealth. He's still because he's got the shares. I suppose he does still have the shares. Still, like, he hasn't like bought something that's disappeared. Um, anyway, <laughs> like so his son's career. Oh no, his son's career. I, you know, I think you might find his son driving a lot of GT3 McLarens in the future. Um, so he's he's relived it fifty times, and what 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 is it? Isn't it wasn't his fault? It was just bad luck. What's the point? Is that is that is a pointless waste of time? He did say, I think it's always easier to judge afterwards because there's a drive when everything's happening and you have one or two tenths to take a decision. Things are different. When you look at it 50 times and you have 10 minutes to think about what he could have done differently, it's a lot easier. Yeah, as far as he's concerned, it's all, it, well, it is, it's all Grosjean's fault. So I'm, I'm not, I'm, I, I would have thought, forget about it and move on. There's nothing you can do. It wasn't your fault. Yeah, it's fine. What did he say? What did he say he would have done if he'd been in Grosjean's shoes? What? Apart from not boot it at full whack across the track? Yes. Would he have... Uh, what, what, what would he have done? I think he'd be more contrite. Would he say, I'll be more contrite and I would have held my hand? That's very close. Well. He said, I would have gone to apologise to him. Okay. Hmm. I'm surprised, I'm surprised Grosjean hasn't actually had a quick word with him and Nico Hulkenberg because it's entirely his fault their race has ended. But, uh, you know, I think Grosjean's under a little bit of pressure again. So uh, let's see what happens this weekend. Uh, predictions for this weekend? Oh, that's a really good question, Tim. I don't know. Um, you kind of think, you know, if... if if everyone is to be suspected, if all the kind of the experts are to be believed, this is going to be a, this is going to be the race where if everything goes to plan, Mercedes will qualify fifth and sixth and will finish fifth and sixth because the car isn't suited to uh, Monaco. However, uh, Ferrari, you know, need to come back from dropping the ball last weekend. And Red Bull have been Red Bull have been very bullish about how they're fantastic, and that hasn't always worked for them. Sometimes they've big themselves up it's not actually gone so well uh and of course the last race where everyone said uh mercedes be rubbish and red bull and ferrari would be great was singapore last year we know how that turned out um so ooh, i think we're going to see some really exciting action on the heap of soft on the newly resurfaced track i think it's going to be very very quick and frightening and qualifying is going to be the sort of the must-see tv of the year i'd say for f1 i am going to say that it's going to work in Ripple's favour and they will get their cars into a 1-2. But I don't know whether Ferrari will be ahead of, of Mercedes. Uh, well, you said it's going to be the most interesting qualifying of the year. What does Carlos Sainz say about it? It's going to be madness and crazy and fabulous. Absolute madness. Um, because uh, there are teams who, out of the 13 sets of tyres that they're allowed, have chosen 11 Hypersofts. Yeah, I'm not really sure it's necessarily the right thing. I mean, you only need you only need one set of hypersofts, you know, 
well, four sets of hypes off, really, because that's what you're going to use them in qualifying, and then you're going to use them again uh, one in the race, and then it's like harder tyre. So you kind of think, you know, if you, effectively what you're saying is you're going to do absolutely no running on the other tyres, except when you get in the race, because you have to run two sets of race. So say you've got 11 hyper softs and one ultra soft and one super soft. Well, that means that you can't run the ultra soft at any point in practice or qualifying because you're just basically using your new race tire up um but degradation is quite low at monaco so might not be a problem but but a new tire is always better even for any lap i mean they're not we're not going to see them wearing out on canvas i mean they could probably run the eper soft for you know 50 to 78 laps so there's going to be a um no variation there but you know i think i think you know i probably you don't need that many eper soft so i probably would have you know, if I was choosing, I'd have chosen, I don't know, 2-2 two, two and 9 or 1-3 and 9, probably. But then what do I know? I'm just sitting in the front. I'm just sitting watching on telly. I'm not down in Monaco. Finally, which driver is not going to be uh, visiting the casino this weekend? Uh, well, Max is too young. Well, you'd think he was too young, but also he says he doesn't like gambling. Blimey. He says, I don't like gambling. I think it's stupid. You go to a casino to lose money. I'd rather throw it into the sea. Do you know somebody else who won't be going to the casino? Is that you? No. Somebody who's... It's, it's actually illegal for him to go to the casino. Vijay Malia. No. Charles Leclerc is illegal for monogasques to go to the casino unless they work there. Ah. And Maybe he could be fact. employed by the... Uh, the croupier. Uh, in, as part of a sponsorship deal, maybe. Mm, perhaps... He'd be, he'd, be, he'd be waiting for someone to try and uh, uh, sell in the fallen Madonna with a big anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, smuggle it through. Let us uh, move away from Formula One because oh. this weekend you are going to be at Imola. I am. I haven't been to Imola for a few years. Last time I was thinking at the ILMC, uh, that, that glorious, I think, one year um, sports car. You've been there more recently than me then because the last time I was there was a Formula One weekend. Well, last time prior to that was a Formula weekend, yeah. So, um, yeah, Imola, fantastic track, uh, fantastic time of year. Looks like it's a bit of a scorcher um, with the Creventic series. Um, we have both of the main classes. We have both the, the GT3s or the A6 and the big cars and the touring cars out there. Uh, they're going to be started separately, a uh, few seconds apart. So, it is going to be classed very much as two separate races, uh, which just means that either Joe or I would need even longer podium serving than before. Uh, 12 hours. It's four hours on uh, Friday, Friday, Saturday race, so four hours on Friday. So tune in at, uh, I think it's half past three. I think it starts that Italian time, three o'clock for the start of the broadcast. So two o'clock in the UK, four hours of, uh, of, of action, uh, Friday. And then the remaining eight hours kick off at 11 local time or 10 in the UK. And we will have it all. And it's me, Joe, Johnny Palmer, and uh, we have Lovey Die as well with us in the in the uh, in the pit lane. And it's not and just the race because there's also practice and qualifying as well. There is, and and just worth the while, I think your times are slightly wrong on the website for those. I believe that qualifying is correct, but practice is wrong because they've uh, issued a new timetable which I haven't yeah. updated yet. But yeah, I think on a general point, I think that it's a great track. It is a fantastic track for multi-class racing, and and, and I think that this is you know, it's borne out again and again in the LMS and the same the race I've been before. It's a fabulous venue, and I think 
you know, we're going to have a couple of pretty good races. We've got, we've got a couple of the teams at the front of the field who are very, very competitive with each other. And, you know, we, we just need a bit of luck for the for some of the uh, other teams. So far, all the luck seems to have gone with the uh, Scuderia Paraha Ferrari. Let's see if that may change round. And we could have a very, very close race indeed. Uh, Nick Damon, uh, enjoy your trip to Italy. Uh, and uh, spending all that time with uh, Johnny Palmer. Uh, are you around for next week's Midweek Motorsport, more importantly? Can't see why not. In that case, uh, we will speak to you next weekend. For now, uh, Nick Damon, good night. Night, Tim. Good night. Now, you may have noticed that John Hindhoff is not with us this weekend. Uh, sorry, this week for Midweek Motorsport. Uh, but he has left us with the first of a series of special features that will follow a classic British brand on an unusual record-breaking run. Let's find out what it's all about. On last week's Midweek Motorsport, in a very special announcement, we revealed that Radio Shore Limited would be the exclusive digital broadcast partner of Bentley and Mobile One's attempt to break the SUV record to climb Pikes Peak. The Pikes Peak International Hill Climb is an absolute legendary event. And in the first of a number of special programmes and podcasts, I took some time out to meet the man at the head of Bentley Motorsport, Brian Gush, no stranger to this programme or these airwaves, and I caught up with him at Silverstone, where he was getting ready for the Blancpain Endurance Series last weekend. The Bentley Bentayga is one of the most comfortable and capable cars in the world. Why would you take it at one of the globe's most torturous pieces of tarmac? Well, the obvious first question was, how did this come about? And why is Bentley Motorsport doing it? Well, we're Bentley boys. We like doing this sort of thing. And we're going to drive up Pike's Peak because we can. Is it really as simple as that? I mean, Bentleys are known for their driver involvement. So it, it does make sense to me that your new SUV, sport utility vehicle, is given a chance to show the S of, of the SUV. Well, Bentleys are, as you say, drivers, drivers' cars. They always have been drivers' cars. Uh, the Bentayga is an exceptionally capable car um, and has shown its capability off-road. Um, but we know that it's really capable on-road as well. Uh, and so this is an ideal opportunity to prove it in one of the greatest hill climbs in the world. A stock motor car. This has not been built to go motor racing. You've taken a car off the line. Clearly you've had to do some safety modifications um, for the regulations because this is a competitive event. But ultimately, this is a car that at the end of this, you could take the cage out you could put the seats the front seats back in you could turn it back into a road car yes it's exactly that it's a it's a production class that we're running in production suv class um and so the regulations request uh, or require uh, safety equipment fitted so rail cage fitted uh, things like carpets have to be taken out um there are certain freedoms um for instance the exhaust uh, can be changed um so um, it is, as you say, a car that can be driven. Uh, and this is what we've done in the past as well. When we broke the high-speed record um, in 2011, um, the, the journos took over the car from, from the high-speed uh, venue and drove it down to the Geneva show. 
Uh, and this is what the Bentley boys in the 20s did. They drove the cars to Le Mans, drove Le Mans, drove home again. Do you get the feeling that the Bentley boys back in the day would have had a go at Pikes Peak had it been on their radar? It was a dirt road back in those days. It is it is hard, hard standing now. But th- this, to me, seems so the daring do of the original Bentley boys. Absolutely. The Bentley boys would be right behind us, and I'm sure WO is watching us as well. <laughs> now, tell us a little bit about the stresses and strains that you're going to put this Bentayga through, because we say a hill climb, and most people will think of a 40 or 50 second run up a hill. Hill climbing, very big still in Europe and here in the UK. But this is a hill climb on steroids, isn't it? Oh, yes. It's uh, around 12 and a half miles. Um, starts at about 9,500 feet, goes to 14,000 feet, 156 corners later. So that's quite some hill climb. So this, again, a production engine, production suspension. This is putting stresses and strains on your lovely, comfortable Bentega SUV that most of your owners probably wouldn't do. Uh, well, we had challenged them to do it. I think they can <laughs> give a good, a good showing. Um, but yes, we have to do our homework and make sure that the car is, um, is up for it and we can deliver on our promise. Um, and that's where uh, partners like Mobile come in. Uh, we've worked with Mobile. I've certainly worked with Mobile uh, since the um, early days at, at Crew. Um, all Crew engines built um, have Mobile as a first full. Uh, and Mobile were first to to come to um, assist us with the project and were really keen. And when we're talking particularly about the engine, um, Mobile One, fully synthetic oil, um, we're talking about sort of 12 minutes of sheer uh, thrashing up this hill to get this time to, to, to break this record. And we're talking about extremes of altitude, as you mentioned. But the temperature change, Brian, must be huge there. And, and this is where the engine oil in particular, Mobile One, has got to work for you. Yeah, well, you can start uh, in, in the late 20s at the start line and, and it can be snowing at the top. Um, so it's, it's a logistical challenge as much as it is a technical challenge. But the, um, uh, the oil has to cope with that. Um, as do the tyres uh, and all other systems on the car. And is it a particular, uh, a special mobile one that you've got, or is it the, the oil that would go in the Bentega or in, in the race cars? Because, of course, you also partner with Mobile One for your circuit racing as well. Yeah, this is the standard factory fill uh, that every, uh, every Bentega gets filled with uh, when it leaves the, the factory, uh, and this is what we use in the race car as well. Yeah. <coughs> We hope you're going to break the record. Um, what do you feel are the biggest challenges and what could stop you doing it and not just going over the time? Where do you feel you've had to focus your attention? Well, as you know, the, the race, you cannot practice. Uh, it's, uh, the practice is done in three stages. You do the bottom bottom third, middle third, top third, um, but that's done in separate separate sessions. Um, so you can't string it all together. Uh, there are no practice runs. There's no uh, second chance. It's one chance once, uh, and that's it. So um, selecting the team uh, to back you up, all, this, all the um, logistics have to work well. And then, of course, the driver. We've got Reese Milne, who's done it before. He knows, he knows the track. There are no guardrails. <laughs> 
So it's uh, it's a challenge. That was Brian Gush, the man at the head of Bentley Motorsport. And here on the Radio Show Limited network of channels, we'll have more on that incredible record-breaking attempt as the Bentley Bentayga, with its Mobile One lubricants, takes on the ultimate hill climb challenge, Pikes Peak International, including some special reports from on-site at Colorado. That's all in the next few weeks as we head through Le Mans and towards the event itself, which is the week after our Le Mans 24-hour coverage on 91.2 FM, Mobile One, Radio Le Mans for 2018. I've logged Mark in the shed, so I get to say still to come on Midweek Motorsport. And still to come on tonight's Midweek Motorsport, uh, that there'll be no more from John Hindhoff, but we'll be hearing... Uh, from Shay Adam, she'll be joining us from the US uh, with news of qualifying from the Indy 500. Uh, we just have Carb Day this Friday, and then it's uh, race time on Sunday. Uh, a very interesting qualifying session. If you don't know what happened, do stay tuned to find out. We'll be talking to Shay in about 30 minutes' time, plus all the other North American news from her. And we have Graham Goodwin joining us. Uh, he'll have the latest sports car news, uh, not in a shed, uh, but in something very different uh, this week. Uh, that's Graham Goodwin, and he will be coming up next. This is Midweek Motorsports Series 13 episode. Midweek Motorsport on RS1. Good evening, Graham Goodwin. I'm hoping you hear me, Tim. I can hear you, yes. The technology does work, does it, mate? I'm in a very, very different place indeed. I'm in the passenger seat of the family Honda on the M11 heading south at about 70 miles an hour. Uh, so you're not only in a different place to usual, but you're also in a different place to where you were at the start of the sentence. I, I, indeed, and at the start of this sentence as well, and at the end of it. Uh, let's start... Uh, with the number 24 because today is just 24 days to the start of that 24-hour race now here's the irony isn't it the irony here is that for just about every endurance racing fan in the world that's an exciting number an exciting milestone for everybody that works there it basically just in it just imbues you with panic that it's just a little too soon you've not got nearly enough done but, uh, yeah, it's going to be upon us. We've got the test day to come. I know this full live coverage of test day. And I gather Johnny Palmer coming for the first time for that one. Yes, I'm, but, I'm uh, told looking that as forward well. To, absolutely. Looking forward to test day. Um, so it's not very long at all uh, before we uh, get to actually see the full grid uh, at the Le Mans 24 hours. There's one or two still uh, st- uh, unknown still. Uh, around there we do know that uh, we're going to see at least a near full lmp1 grid i'm hearing it may be a full 10 uh, we'll wait and see whether or not the final car that is it there uh, but uh, by in some doubt don't think there's any doubt we will see the team whether or not we see them with their uh, designated car is a different matter but uh, i expect to see a full 60 60 car grid for the 2018 le mans 20 hours uh, there has been some concern that there are no uh, spare chassis available. So, 
what other options um, could we be seeing? Well, we're talking about dragon speed. Of we course, are, yes. And there are a couple of uh, couple of clarifications. Number one, SMP Racing do have a spare chassis to replace the one that can't build into oblivion uh, at the top of Radion uh, during the Spa uh, six hours. Uh, dragon speed didn't have a spare chassis. What we don't yet know is the status of whether or not they might have one in time for the Le Mans 24 hours. Uh, I am aware that there has been prospect raised of a force majeure entry for a P2 car. They have a second Norica, of course. Uh, but uh, best information I have at the moment is that they may well be closing in on a repeat with uh, LMP1. We'll wait and see what Alton Junior can tell us in the coming days. Uh, well, that is good news. Uh, the question is, it, uh, they might have a spare chassis, but would they want to run it given uh, the accident that beset them at Spa? Well, this is the accident, of course, uh, Tim, that beset uh, Pietro Filippoldi. He's in the United States now recovering from the leg injuries he suffered. Uh, what team principal Elton Julian said to me um, was that he would not put the guys back in the car unless he'd had full reassurance as to the results of the inquiry into the accident and the reasons why uh, that accident caused the injuries it did, uh, you would presume that if Elton um, uh, is indeed happy to to go down the LMP1 route rather than a force majeure P2, that those results have been forthcoming and he is satisfied. It is fair to say there have been conflicting accounts of the damage to that car. I did see the car after the incident. I didn't see the car fully stripped back. And of course, you've also got to take into account there was some significant damage to the tub caused by the extraction of Pietro from it. Uh, so it would be a tough one for anyone who is as technical a nincompoop as I am to make real conclusions from what you thought you saw. And uh, I think we can wait. We can afford to wait and hear what is said about it. I don't think we're under any illusions that there's any issue whatsoever um, around the safety of that car. This being a, uh, an inquiry that was headed by the FIA, it's unlikely that we'll be talking in these terms now. Now, the ACO uh, is clearly not uh, that busy with uh, preparations for Le Mans because I've had time today to make an announcement about the future of LMP3. They have a good Just losing Graham Goodwin there, unfortunately. Uh, while we try and get him back, I can tell you that uh, the ACO announced today that uh, four uh, car manufacturers will, will be making LMP3 cars in the next cycle, which is uh, from 2020 to 2024, and they will be on Roke. Uh, I can hear you, Tim, if you can hear me. Ah, you are back, yes. So on Roke, Norma, Janetta yes, yeah, and Ades. Yes, so the, the, two, uh, the two or three bits of news there, of course, uh, uh, Norma now in the hands of Decade Engineering. Uh, on Roke with the Ligier brand, of course, has been the dominant force in numerical terms. Ades have had an on-off relationship with LMP3. To be blunt, the initial car was not good enough, has uh, raced in tiny, tiny numbers. Uh, but that company bought into some little while ago by none other than Carlos Tavares. Uh, so that's an interesting step forward, potentially, for that group. And yes, Ginetta 
the original um, mark behind the launch of the concept. Of course, won the first championship, ELMS championship back in 2015 with uh, Chris Hoy and Charlie Robertson. Uh, Chris Hoy now, of course, remaining Olympic hero. Uh, Charlie Robertson about to be an LMP1 driver in just a week or two's time. Um, and that Ginetta are stepping up, have gone through that process. They were uh, before the selection board uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And we will see a relaunched, completely revamped uh, Ginetta LMP3. The interesting part about this one, we, we had, uh, what, a year or two ago, just a sniff that they might be considering a bit of a power boost for the LMP3 cars. And it looks as if that will happen with the new homologation. But no Riley anymore. Well, the reality is, sadly, there was only ever one. And it certainly appears to be the case that they've not managed to get the business case together for that chassis. It's not really been competitive. And let's put it this way, if they did reapply, and we don't know that they did, uh, they certainly were not successful. So no Riley. The other one, of course, that was in the mix for a little wee while was uh, the Dome Mark. But that, uh, that no, no one bought one of those of last time, did they? Well, nobody built one, I think, I think is what it came down to. So the reality there is that uh, we've got the four. Uh, it is, uh, you know, effectively, excuse me, uh, it is two French makes, it's one UK make. And I'm feeling, Adesse, am I right now based on the Island of Mallorca? I think it might be. It would be a lovely uh, place to go and do a factory tour, wouldn't it? Uh, it would, but the other thing to say, actually, is that you know it has been a big success you know it's got things running um for an entry class for, for lmp racing in a way that frankly nothing has in pretty much living memory however uh we have got to that stage where the numbers have stalled a little bit it does need a bit of pep be interesting to see what they do about grandfathering these old cars because there's what must be 120 130 uh lmp three cars in circulation worldwide it's going to be an interesting time to see what they can do to get take up with a revised lmp3 uh, there's also been uh, news this week about uh, something else that will be supporting the le mans 24 hours and that's the amr uh, le mans festival uh, which uh, will have uh, a selection of aston martin or a, select, a pair at least of aston martin vulcans Yep, first, uh, official racing for the Vulcan, of course. This was the track-only car produced by David King's Skunk Works at uh, Aston Martin Lagonda. And uh, the the reality there is that uh, this is going to be the first time it's going to be seen officially racing, not lapping quickly, but racing in front of a public audience. Two of them uh, in amongst a, well, a, a really nice mix of Aston Martin GT machinery, including some uh, X-Factory GT3 cars, GT2 cars, and in a GT4 car, amongst quite a number of GT4 cars, we mentioned Chris Hoy, he's going to be there, uh, driving alongside one Mr. Martin Brundle. Yes, uh, and I see that there's another GT4 for uh, uh, Jamie Chadwick and Paul Hollywood. Uh, Yeah, absolutely, and Jamie's uh, driven with Paul before in British GT, uh, Paul Hollywood, uh, the what, how, what would you call it? Cobalt-eyed uh, cook of some baker of some uh, some note, uh, but it's been pretty quick actually in GT4 machinery. So it's going to be an interesting one. I, I sincerely hope 
we're going to have a detainment like of the fact we got the first year for the Aston Martin Festival and not like the second year when somebody binned it at Tete Rouge and we had all but, what, two laps? Behind the safety car. Uh, red flag, done. Uh, uh, but, uh, that, was the, that was the year, by the way, we unfortunately didn't get to see whether or not Stuart Hall was able to chase down the entire field, having started um, a lap down in the wonderful Lord of Aston Martin. And uh looks like Jamie Chadwick must have stolen uh, Hindy's seat because uh, Jamie with Paul Hollywood and then uh, Andy Palmer and uh, Peter Cater also uh, in a GT4. Well, I mean, if she's stolen John's seat, there's going to need to be a massive insert in at least one part <laughs> of the, uh, the seat there. It's a lot so, of foam you know, to go there. Massive amount of foam, a, a kind of climate-changing level of foamage. Uh LMP1, let's go back to LMP1, uh, because the privateer LMP1 teams, uh, there have been some mumblings, haven't there, about, uh, um, am I allowed to say balance of performance? You can say equivalence of technology. I mean, I think the reality is it equates to much the same thing. Uh, what do we say about this? Well, look, uh, it's a first stab from the ACO getting this right. There is little doubt there are some, some things at play here. Um, but I think having seen the EOT and for that matter, the balance of performance of the GTE cars, I think I'm ready for a bit of a rant. And it's probably not the one that the listener is, is, is expecting. And it's this. I am tired of this kind of information just kind of pattering out in a way in which it is never explained. And what that means is that everybody gets the opportunity to misconstrue, uh, to misunderstand to overly sensationalize these things without really understanding number one the reasoning behind it number two what it actually means and there is only one organization whose fault that is and that is the aco it is high time ladies and gentlemen our french friends that if you're going to actually have these uh, matters determining the outcome of a race or a championship like the wec or the le mans 24 hours when you issue these bulletins, you make it clear why you're doing it and what it is that they're intended to do. Because showing up the raw numbers behind this is nonsensical. It might make sense to the guys in the scrutineering booth uh, base. It might make sense to the big brain guys uh, with the slide rules or the supercomputers. But the reality is this is now part of the core of the product that you're presenting to the fans and there will be 240,000 of them in France that don't have a clue why you've done it or what indeed it's intended to do. Time for change. Uh, also in LMP1, uh, Jensen Button has had his first opportunity to do some testing. Uh, well, yeah, I'm not sure. Did we talk about this one last I'm not sure we talked about it last week, but I rather bizarrely did bump into Jensen um, at the Eurotunnel. Um, just completely by chance, on his way out to uh, test the SMP Racing uh, BR1, the AR car, AR engine car, and he had a whale of a time. Spoke to uh, one of his uh, entourage, one of his pals at the uh, Brompan Endurance Race weekend last weekend at, uh, on Saturday, and it went splendidly well. Yes, there were some searching questions asked about uh, uh, Matavos Azakian's 
uh, you know, magnificent men in their flying machines moments at the top of Radion. But once they got over that, the discussion about what was being done to sort that, uh, I think it looked as if the test was a resounding success. Uh, JP has put out some, uh, some, some film of that happening. It's on his YouTube channel. Uh, and it looks to me like he's going in there with his dander up. Um, and, you know, do I think he's going to be you know, banging heads, you know, um, race along with Fernando Alonso? Not this year. Uh, but boy, oh boy, it's good to see drivers of their caliber, their renown, if you like, in what we all know is, is the biggest race in the world. Uh, it's most certainly the, the biggest endurance race in the world. And for me, the biggest race event in the, uh, you know, on the planet. There's very few that come remotely close to that. And it's great to see that it is attracting guys of their calibre, of the calibre of people like Juan Pablo Montoya, for that matter, Pastor Maldonado. You know, some big, big names this year uh, at the Le Mans 24 Hours. And whilst I know there's a little bit of cynicism about whether or not we're going to see a major race at the front, let's wait and see um, how many times... You know, Vice said it, as John said, as Johnny said it, you know, you never do know what these races are going to throw at you. And they usually, usually do. It must be good for Jensen that he is achieving uh, continued success racing in Japan. Another podium position uh, last week. And indeed points leader now in the Super GT Championship. What a story that would be. And, you know, let's face it. There's, there's two things about Jensen in the Super GT Championship. Number one is... That of course, he's an absolutely huge name uh, to be attracted to the Honda outfit and the championship as a whole. But number two is that effectively, it's a great big target on his back because every single young gun, and for that matter, slightly older, more tarnished gun um, in the in the paddock is going to want to beat a bona fide um, Formula One world champion. Why wouldn't you? So it's I think it's great news for. Uh, the championship, I think it's great news for Jensen Button. He's having a whale of a time. He's thoroughly enjoying himself. Uh, he's always been a big fan of Japanese culture as well. Oh, have we lost... Pure bubbles around motorsport, not just in Formula 1, but, you know, he might just be fading in Have you lost me? Uh, no, you, you came back. There you go. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, it's, I think it's high time we saw more of this. Let's see some more of the guys that have got real form uh, in all sorts of motorsports having a crack at some of these big races. We came, I should tell you, not a story I can tell in depth, but very, very close to having another world champion, not from Formula One, on the grid of the Le Mans 24 hours this year. Oh, am I allowed to guess? Uh, you could guess, but I won't tell you. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's it, there has been a lot of movement. Is it, is it in the someone background. who is more used to two wheels than four? No. Oh, no, not him. It's a four-wheel world champion and a significant four-wheel world champion. But uh, that might be one that has to be saved for another year. And I'm going to keep the, na- the names out to spare uh, the the blushes. But uh, it's a real plan. It, I think it may well happen in the coming seasons, and it could have been this year. This is a race. No matter what the woes to do with Dieselgate and VAG this and, you know, budget that, this is a race that genuinely draws top-level interest. And when the, the clouds pass and the calendars allow, 
you know, we, we do get something pretty spectacular. And this year, for very different reasons from maybe previous years, it's going to be spectacular in a completely different way. Uh, one uh, more sports car story for you, Graham, and we're heading across the Atlantic for this one. Uh, Spirit of Daytona Racing returning to the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship uh, at Belle Isle. And it's not great to hear. I mean, so, so unlucky uh, at Sebring. Uh, the car taking a mighty, mighty hit in the hands of Tristan Voitier. Just, uh, just got himself distracted by something in the cockpit. Uh, missed, a, missed his turning point more than breaking point, got himself onto the marbles, and effectively the car effect just stayed into the wall. That tubbed the thing. That's uh, gone on to cause them some programming and some budgeting, uh, budgetary difficulties. It's taken them some little while to recover, but it will you know, do your heart good to see this team, who I think have performed in the races we've seen them so far, uh, way above the expectation that most people actually had of them. So let's wait and see what actually comes out at Belar. Let's hope they have a good, clean, safe race and welcome back to one of the teams that's been, you know, a stalwart of the IMSA championship in the DPI era. And I forget that there will be live coverage from uh, Belle Isle next weekend uh, over on our sister channel RS2 IMSA Radio. That starts Friday the 1st of June with uh, free practice at uh, just after 1 o'clock in the afternoon uh, UK time on RS2. Second practice later that evening uh, followed by qualifying and then on Saturday we have warm-up and the whole of the Chevrolet Sports Car Classic uh, from Belle Isle in Detroit. Uh, before our attention comes back to Europe on Sunday, we're here on RS1. It is Le Mans Test Day, and uh, once again, the only live coverage of Le Mans Test Day will be on RS1. Radio Le Mans, 91.2 FM if you're at Le Mans. Uh, starts at 7.50am UK time, 8.50 if you're at Le Mans. Uh, and Johnny Palmer will be hosting the full day uh, of coverage from the Circuit de la Sarth, uh with, in the lunch break, a brand new Tyler's Long one uh, featuring the recently retired Guy Smith. So don't miss that. Oh, can I, Go on. Can I give you a little bit of uh, Guido Smith-related gossip? Yes. It's, it's quite a nice one. Um, I know a lot of the listeners flow uh, ever more closely historic racing and I can tell you because the car appeared well, in public Guy Smith is someone who has done a lot of not only historic racing but he's done historic rallying in the past hasn't he? He has indeed he's got a, he's got a BDA uh, engined uh, Mark 1 uh, Escort of course hasn't he? But uh, in the hands of its new owner Sean Lynn um, the, uh, the very first racing Bentley uh, GTP car, one of the Le Mans cars from back in the day, now in private hands and back racing and will be seen in some of the major historic events this year uh, and a couple of the different packages, but great to hear that Sean's got hold of that car to add to his uh, excellent collection and I look forward to seeing him, I think we're going to be seeing uh, a little bit of that car uh, through this year both, I believe in Global Endurance Legends, which is on the Patrick Peter um package and also may well be seen in the Masters Historic Legends which is on the, the Masters Historic Racing package and uh, whether or not we see it this weekend at the uh, Brands Hatch Festival I'll tell you next week because I'll be there 
Ooh, I said, uh, with my microphone closed, now it's open. Uh, anything else that I've missed in sports car world, Graham? So much, and there's just not time. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot going on, Tim, as you might well imagine, as we get through to, um, you know, into the, the thrashings before we get to uh, the Le Mans 24 hours. Lots of testing going on. Caught, caught up at, uh, at Silverstone this weekend with Andrea Bertolini, uh, astoundingly for Andrea, who's been around since God was just a lad, uh, had his very first run ever in an LMP car uh, in testing ahead of his appearance with to sport Tracy Crone and Nick Johnson for the Le Mans 24 hours. So he's never run, tested even, a, an LMP car of any description, but will race one at the Le Mans 24 hours at the LMP. Two, uh, we saw uh, also in that same test at Monza the first uh, opportunity to see the low downforce package for the Rebellion. I'm sure we're going to see further tweaks uh, around some of the cars before we get there. We've got others out testing uh, at Spa at the moment. Uh, we've got Genetis testing. Named as a driver for the uh, Genetis squad for Le Mans 24 hours. Uh, that rather sadly means no seat for Dean Stoneman uh, this time around, but I'm sure his day will come. But Mike, for so long, a stalwart of the uh, the Ginetta family, uh, is given a nod by the boss uh, for the biggest race of his career. And for that matter, the biggest race of Ginetta's career at this point. So let's wait and see how things actually pan out in just a couple of weeks' time. Uh, Graham Goodwin, live from the M11 southbound. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Always a delight. Have a great evening. Uh, and uh, we mentioned some of the upcoming treats across the Radio Show Limited network uh, while we were talking to Graham. Uh, don't forget there are more of those uh, to come this week. Not only have we got the Imola 12 hours on Friday and Saturday, as uh, Nick mentioned earlier on, Tomorrow night at 8pm here on RS1, it's the May edition of the Toro Radio Show. Uh, so join Matt and uh, Lewis for that. Uh, and after we finish tonight, it's episode two of the Australian Prototype Series, which Crow, uh, and I can't off the top of my head remember which circuit they were at. Was it Winton they went to? Uh, for that one, uh, we will find out more by listening to Richard at 10pm tonight, right after tonight's midweek motorsport uh so that's some of the things coming up this week here on rs1 uh let's move stateside now and say good evening to shay adam good evening tim gray uh how's the weather in florida uh, it stopped raining thankfully <laughs> it uh, was beautiful and sunny earlier and then all of a sudden rain came out of nowhere welcome to florida in uh beginning of hurricane season <laughs> uh, it was beautiful and sunny here earlier, and then it got oh. dark because it's late. Oh, that uh, does tend to happen, though. Still uh, clear, cloudless skies above us, though. Oh, no, nice. No, no sign of any rain happening. Uh, we're going to talk about the Indy 500, uh, and the lovely people at IndyCar who seem to think that I know nothing about IndyCar, which is wrong, uh, have sent me a list of things to talk about. Shay has also sent me a list of things to talk about, as if she thinks I know nothing about IndyCar. To be fair, I missed all of qualifying. Um, Did you? Because I was busy uh, doing other motor racing. Um, 
but I do have a vague idea of what's happened. Uh, but let's see what IndyCar think are the things we should be talking about. Uh, okay. First of all, uh, the track is a two and a half mile oval. Is it? Yeah, which means that they have what? to do 200 laps to complete 500 miles. And they have mm. 36 sets of tires. That's a lot. Isn't that for the uh, entirety of the whole event, though, qualifying and everything? That is for the entirety of the whole event, yes. Hmm. Uh, Takuma Sato was last year's winner. He is. Uh, He is one of six former winners uh, in this year's field, the others being Helio Castro Neves, a three-time winner in 2001, 2002, and 2009. Scott Dixon, who won in 2008. Tony Kanan in 2013. Ryan Hunter Ray in 2014. And Alex Rossi in 2016, which is the year I went. Uh, this year's Verizon IndyCar Series has had four different winners, including Rossi, Joseph Newgarten, Will Power, and Sebastian Bourdais. It's mm-hmm. had six different pole sitters, including Ed Carpenter, who is on pole for this year's race. Tell us how he got that. Well, he did that by somehow having a connection with the Speedway that nobody else does. Ed getting his third Indy 500 pole, the first two coming in 2013 and 2014. He was the only driver who was able to do a lap by himself above the speed of 230 miles an hour. That was during his four-lap qualifying run, too, which is even more impressive uh, in the top nine shootout. And when that session began, it looked early on. Spencer Pickett had a very strong car when he went out. He sort of held on to that top position for a while until Joseph Newgarden came along and took it away, who then had the position usurped by Will Power who then had the position taken away from him by Simon Paginot. And then it was down to two. Ed Carpenter went out and set a lap time that it looked to be untouchable. But the guy coming up behind him was one Elio Castroneves, who also is a three-time pole sitter at the Indy 500. A lot of expectation was on Elio, but he didn't have as good of a run for pole. His time was only good enough for eighth. So the Penske cars will line up second, third, fourth, and eighth. But it is Ed Carpenter, the uh, homeboy from Indiana, who put on quite the show. His best finish at the 500, though, is only fifth, despite being on pole three times. So we'll have to see if maybe this can finally be the charm, if he can break into the podium and, dare I say it, even drink the milk come Sunday. So is he one of these drivers that can qualify but not race? The the uh, the anti-Connor Daly, I, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's going to be an interesting race. And, and you mentioned Connor Daly. He qualified last, uh, initially made it into the field on bump day. There was a little bit of drama. At one point, he was outside of the field, but he made it back in. Starting next to him on Sunday is going to be the guy that you mentioned, the guy who won the race the year that you went, Tim, uh, Alexander Rossi, the two of them teammates on the amazing race this year which is kind of ironic that the two reality tv stars right now in the race not starting in the best position but qualifying just it really was one of those things where it it shook up a lot of expectations uh rossi had a bad set of tires on his run and on the sunday of qualifying when they actually set the grid positions you don't get to keep going around and around you only get one shot at it so for daily his time i think he was the first no third car who went out on track on sunday 
his best time was good enough for 33rd. And Rossi, who went out with the bad set of tires, he couldn't come back in and pit for a different set. He had to go out and put down a lap time that he could. And even with the car that wasn't handling as well, he was still better than Daly's time. It's going to be a very interesting race on Sunday, though, because the entire field is not as spread out as it has been in previous years since people really had to fight to get in. And that's what we witnessed on Saturday was that fight. Uh, So bump day actually meant something this year. Yeah. And we lost some pretty significant names for the Indy 500, uh, including uh, Pippa Mann. Yeah, and I was gutted for Pippa. Um, what class does she have? We got to see her racing a little bit in IMSA WeatherTech last year. She was running in the Lamborghini Super Trofeo Series. Met her, had some really nice conversations. She really is dedicated to this race, the Indy 500 is her one focus every year, more so than anything else. And she gave it her all. The car just didn't have the speed in it. And they trimmed it out to the point where anybody driving the car would have gotten what she got out of it. I I completely believe that. And it just wasn't meant to be this year. But what class? She went up about an hour after the final gun sounded on um, bump day to the media center to field questions from journalists and to publicly apologize to her sponsors for not making it in. It was just a really depressing scenario, but we knew it was going to happen. We knew that two cars were going to be turned away. The big surprise came with who else was bumped, and that is Canada's own James Hinchcliffe. So to lay it out a little bit, um, because there's a bit of confusion over the series of events on bump day, what happened was they started the qualifying session. They, they started the bump day session based off of where you drew a number out of the bag and you were allowed to draw two numbers, the first for your primary car and the second for your backup car. You were only allowed to run the backup if you were using the backup chassis. So there would be no messing around with anything. You get what you get. In the first group of cars that went out, Uh, It was Elio who was the fastest. He would prove to be untouchable that day. He set the quickest time on Saturday. And the car who went out right before James Hinchcliffe was Simon Pagano. He put in the second quickest time of the day, and it it stood. It started raining soon thereafter. Um, Pagano finished his lap, and before Hinch was sent out, rain started to fall. So before he could take the green flag, they put it on a red flag. It was on a rain delay for 110 minutes. As soon as it was good to go out again on the track, James was allowed to go out. This is at 2.12 in the afternoon. He is the 12th car to make an attempt at qualifying, and it was pretty substantial rain, so most of the rubber was washed away. The track conditions were different. And once your car has been put in line for qualifying, you're not allowed to do setup changes to it, so it's done. It didn't matter that the car that they had put in line to go out was set up for a warmer condition, maybe for the air a little bit thinner, the humidity had come in. It was a different scenario. doesn't matter, not making any excuses. But as more and more cars ran, the time that James Hinchcliffe was able to set down pushed him further toward the bubble. He, he wasn't in a safe area. He was still waiting in line where you hold your time, so you're not withdrawing your time to skip ahead of the line. You're saying, I still feel comfortable with the time I've set. I still think it's good enough to get me in the field. I'm just going to wait patiently for everybody else to go, and then I'm going to take my opportunity. So at 
the point of bumping when that began, which was about 527 in the afternoon, so we're more than three hours later, Connor Daly was bumped out of the field. He was the first one. He withdrew his time to go run for a second time immediately. Back out on track when James Hinchcliffe got there was 537. Now, this is before he had withdrawn his time. He felt a bad vibration on the outlap. Turns out that a tire sensor failure broke free in the wheel. It was rattling around. It, we don't know if it would have proven to be dangerous or not, but they didn't let him run. He came back in the pits, went back to his box instead of going straight back in line, and the crew fixed it. But that meant that people were able to jump ahead of him in line. Alex Rossi was trying to break into the fast nine. He did not give up his time. He was waiting patiently in the other lane, the non-skip ahead lane. He went out, didn't make it into the top 10, was good enough for the uh, top nine, was the 10th best time. After he finished his run, Graham Rahal went out. And a lot of people have been criticizing Rahal, another Honda driver. They said, why did you go out? You took away a possibility for James to go out and set a time. Well, the truth of the matter was, Hinch wasn't entirely ready, and Graham Rahal was fighting his own battles. He's had a car that has not been handling as well as he wanted all week, all month, really. So he went back out, tried to get a better setup on the car, because they don't have a lot of running before the race actually comes around. Then it was Pippa's turn to go out. She had jumped in the eliminate my time, go back out, try and set a time that's good enough. And while she was out on track, the final gun of the day sounded, which meant that everybody was done, the field was set. Pippa did not set a better time than she had previously, so she was also eliminated. There was further confusion because James Hinchcliffe believed that he had until 6 p.m. The final gun goes off at 5.50. A lot of people were really confused about that, and the first person to actually tell James, no, dude, you're out, it's done, was Marco Andretti, who walked over to him as soon as the gun sounded, and Hinch was still sitting in his car going, I've got a chance. It has has been been, 6 p.m. in the past, hasn't it? It it has been, but that was a long time ago. I think it's been since about 2013 or 2014 that the time has actually expired at 5.50. It's not something new, and it's something that is in the rule book. It's not a change. So it meant that they were officially eliminated Pippa man and James Hinchcliffe were officially out at 5:50 in the afternoon and James Davison qualified 33rd he had crashed the car quite badly the day before so it really was a big thank you to the Bellardi team to work hard to rebuild the car and get him in the show there was a lot of talk soon thereafter about well buying a way in because that's not something that's unheard of Ryan Hunter Ray did it in 2011 yeah, um, remember brought, that it's the car that qualifies, not the driver. Exactly. It, it is the number, the chassis, the team. It's not an individual. So in 2011, it was A.J. Foyt and Bruno Junquera who gave way to Ryan hunter Ray, And hunter Ray ran a car that was a mishmash of his personal sponsors and Junquera's sponsors on the car. It was run under a Foyt entry, it, but it, it ran. There was a lot of talk going on would James Hinchcliffe be able to buy a seat because he's fifth in the championship and this is effectively going to end any shot they have at it this year and when it came down to it his sponsor Arrow said we don't want to make the show that way the team talked with a few different cars that made it in including Connor Daly very well known that SPM approached the 17 entrant of Connor Daly's car 
they wanted to potentially see something happen, but there was no seat to be bought. There was nothing to give up. So what it means is that James Hinchcliffe, the pole sitter of the Indy 500 in 2016, is not running in 2018. And this is sort of what people have been wanting, though, Tim. We've been asking for a bump day for so many years because it's been a struggle to get 33 cars in a field. Now we've got it. Now somebody that everybody loves, such as James Hinchcliffe, a championship contender, it has to be said, is eliminated and people are all up in arms. Interestingly, the one person who's not has been James Hinchcliffe. He's been very humble about this whole thing, saying it's nobody's fault but our own. We weren't good enough. And you got to look back at the series of events during the qualifying. Could they have pulled their guaranteed time sooner, which would have meant that James had one, maybe two more chances to lay down a lap? Yeah. Was there speed in the car? Well, both of his teammates qualified very well on that first day. So, yes, there was speed. Do we know that James has speed? Yeah, he's a former pole sitter. But coulda, woulda, shoulda at this point in time. The truth is that the five won't be running and that James will probably be invited to go to the ABC booth. He'll probably be entertaining sponsors in the aero uh, area of the Indy 500 Speedway. But he will not be racing and, and he definitely won't be drinking the milk this year. Uh, now, some drivers who definitely will be racing, uh, five uh, rookies, uh, Robert Wickens, uh, Matthias Leist, Kyle Kaiser, and Zachary Clamandamelo. Yeah, and how about that for Zachary Clamandamelo? He's a youngster from Canada, so we do have two Canadians in the field. That's the good news. Both Canadians being rookies, as you mentioned, Robert Wickens. Um, Zachary Clamandamelo didn't know that he was going to be running this race until I think it was Monday <laughs> when they started practicing for the 500. He's done an excellent job coming up to speed. He starts in the 13th position on Sunday's race, which if you haven't had an opportunity yet, Tony DeZino has written a great article about why the number 13 means a lot to ZCM. It has to do with his grandmother. Uh, so it's it's a pretty cool bit of, uh, of alignment there. But there were a lot of really pleasant surprises that came out of qualifying, uh, including A.J. Foyt's, both of his cars. They're starting 10th and 11th. Tony Kanaan and Matthias Leist, another one of the rookies. They're going to be very fun to watch. Kanaan was joking with Leist. He said, hey, man, if, if you want to be on the fourth row, that's okay, but you have to be beside me. And uh, sure enough, they went out for qualifying, and Leist put down a time, and Kanaan narrowly beat it. So they are st- starting alongside of each other. And uh, another shout-out? Yunko's Racing, Kyle Kaiser did a very good job on Sunday of being the best qualifier of the one-car teams. It's a hard enough thing to get a setup on your car for the Indy 500 when you've got a teammate with you, but doing it when it's all on your own, that team works massively over time, and 17th is very impressive for them. And for the 19th consecutive year, we have a female driver in the race. Yes, we do. And for her last race, uh, Danica Patrick running with Ed Carpenter Racing, all three of their cars made it into the top nine. So all of them had a shot for the pole. As I said, Spencer Piggott uh, qualified sixth. So really great job. Ed on pole. Danica starts seventh. And it, it was announced yesterday, last night on the Jimmy Kimmel show, that she is going to be first female host of the ESPYs this year uh, takes place in the middle of July. So that's a big accomplishment for her as well. And 
she's been a very uh, polarizing character. A lot of people don't like her. A lot of people do like her. It doesn't matter your personal opinion on her, though. We really do have to set aside a little bit of respect for her because she has been a, a credible person in racing. She is the most successful woman in American open wheel racing. That is worth denoting. She's led I, laps I would say she's the most uh, successful female uh, open wheel racer anywhere in the world in the last 30 years. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, she's led laps at Daytona 500, Indy 500. She sat on pole for the Daytona 500. And she's wrapping up her career this weekend. It's something that we've known about for a long time, doing the Danica double that will conclude this weekend. And she's got a good record at the Speedway. We've got to wish her well in her final green flag this weekend, driving in the bright green machine that we came to know her for so well so many years ago. So while we uh, might have very differing opinions on her, uh, many, many sports fans do, uh, you've got to just give a silent uh, raise of the glass to Danica this weekend for a career well made. And regardless, she has inspired young girls to go into racing. So, you know, good on her and, and helping the next generation. And hopefully she does well with her yoga fitness career that she's embarked on as well. Uh, Tony Kanaan, it is his 289th consecutive race. Uh, that will break a record that he already holds. Wow. He is so impressive, Tony Kanaan. And just think about what's coming up in the next few weeks for him and Scott Dixon and Sebastian Bourdais. They go from the Indy 500, a doubleheader at Belle Isle, which means that they're going to be missing the Le Mans test, unfortunately. But then they're going to race in Texas, fly over to France for scrutineering do the 24 hours of Le Mans that weekend. And I think they've got to race the weekend after that too, if I'm not mistaken. So it's a very busy schedule for all three of them. But for Tony, wow, he's uh, he's an impressive guy. They, they keep showing all these replays, Tim, in the U.S. of Tony winning in uh, 2014 and just what a cool experience that was. It's 2013. And, uh, 2013, yeah, sorry. And just what a, what a neat experience that was. And what a happy guy he was back then and, and how refreshed he is this year. I, I could see him being a serious contender when Sunday rolls around. He's had three other top four finishes in uh, in the time since that as well. So it's not uh, not like that win was a one-off. No, no, for sure. And he's somebody who's, whenever he takes the lead of the Indy 500, there is an audible cheer. I, I don't know if he led in 2016 when you were there, Tim, but... I was there when he won in 2013, and the roar when he took over the lead was deafening. It was louder than the engines, let's put it that way. Uh, being on pole position does not uh, mean you'll win. Only 20 times has it been won from pole position, and the last one was nearly 10 years ago. The last one was uh, Elio, Elio Castroneves, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, it was. and Elio is another one of those drivers who is going to be very difficult to beat once the green flag falls. He proved in the uh, Indianapolis Grand Prix that he's lost zero of his finesse of driving an Indy car, uh, finishing sixth in that race, I believe it was. And he's just got this invigoration that coming back to Indy car 
especially for a race like the 500. Last year, it was sort of acknowledged at the end of the season that he wasn't going to be returning, but it wasn't ever publicly said. He never said, this is my final IndyCar race, or I'm not going to be going for the championship next year. And for a guy who finished second in the championship as many times as Ilio did, it felt a little bit disrespectful to watch the Sonoma broadcast and not see that big party for him celebrating the end of a full season commitment for him. There would be nothing sweeter for Elio Castroneves than coming back to the series. He's already got one top 10 finish. If he comes into the 500, gets his fourth win of the great race. And we have to keep reminding ourselves he's going for number four, which is extraordinary in itself, trying to be the fourth guy to join that club. He would make the statement, drop the mic, and then come back to IMSA. It, he he would be grinning even more, and I don't know how that's possible because he's already smiling like such a little kid every time we see him in our paddock. Uh, carburation day is Friday. Now, these days, that's just uh, another practice session, isn't it? Uh, but we do have an Indy Lights race the same day, don't we? Yeah, and Carp Day, it's it's always fun to watch because it's only an hour of practice, so everybody tends to go out and run around together. It's, uh, it gets your blood going for sure. And then the Indy Lights race, the Freedom 100, which starts at 12.30 on Friday, 12.30 uh, local time. So that's 5.30 for you, I believe, in London. Um, and then the Pit Stop Challenge, which yes. comes up at the end of the race. and Which that always attracts so a massive fun. crowd. Oh, it's ridiculously fun. Um, because basically it's a time to highlight the guys who don't ever get talked about. The tire changers, the fuel man, the jack man. And the drivers get all amped up for it too. It's, it's something I remember standing behind the cars in 2013 when they were doing the Pit Stop Challenge. And people were having so much fun. That during the race, there's concerts, there's parties. It's a whole big festival. But the pit stop competition, it's really, it's a moment in the the sunshine for the people who don't normally get it. It's a really cool experience. Uh, One final thing that I've got to mention earlier on about Zachary Clement and Melo. He is, of course, being coached by a Le Mans class winner. Yeah, and uh, good on Matt Housen for getting on a plane yesterday and actually going over. He's going to be at the Indy 500, uh, was helping Zachary through his Indy Lights careers and coming up the ladder. Uh, Wrote quite a while back that he thought this kid was going to be something. And to see Zachary Clemendamello's progress over the years is certainly something that I, I bet makes Mr. Housen pretty happy. But glad to see him back in a paddock. We need to get him back in the car, though, Tim. It's been too long. Uh, let's move on to the other race happening in uh, the States this weekend. But before we do, uh, the one that happened last weekend, the All-Star Race at Charlotte. Oh, yeah. And that was fun to watch. Um, in the, Of course, it was Kevin Harvick who won it again, wins another million dollars for Kevin. He really is untouchable this year. But it was the qualifying racers where... Alex Bowman, Daniel Suarez, and forgive me, I can't remember who the third driver was who who made their way. And Chase Elliott was voted in from the popular vote. Um, but there was somebody else who won a stage. Oh, AJ Allmendinger. And AJ yes. drove like a madman. He was and Finished brilliant. eighth in the end. Oh, it was so much fun to watch. He looked like he had a car to win when there were about three laps to go. And then he just made a move into the wrong lane and sort of got swallowed up toward the back. 
But that was quite a performance to watch. Jimmy Johnson has some serious guardian angels, though. There was a huge wreck, and I don't know how he got through it, but he did. Um, He had started at the back of the pack because of a penalty, a speeding on pit lane or too many men over the wall. It was something silly that the commentators were saying, well, this might just be a blessing in disguise. And that's exactly what it turned out to be. If you get an opportunity to watch the replay, just look up the the two-minute video. It's, It's very funny to see. 38 lead changes during the race. It makes for good racing. The all-star format, uh, 30 laps and then a break and then two 20-minute, 20 20 20-lap segments and then a break and then a final 10-lap shootout, but there's no mandatory pit stop. Um, so you come in whenever you feel like you can come in and have a really good shot at it. And like I said, Kevin Harvick, though, the way that he is driving this year, it's just... It's like he's in a different sort of car to everybody else. He is on another plane. And uh, it's a good thing that the championship's going to be decided in the last race, because if it weren't, he would already have enough to basically park up and go home at this point. <laughs> uh, the, I mean, part of the excitement was caused by uh, some changes to the cars um, that the teams weren't told about till very late on in order to that uh, none of them could go into a wind tunnel and uh, spend hours uh, trying to find out how to make uh, these changes work properly. Um, Massive spoiler at the back and uh, some air ducts at the front as well. Yeah, and the most entertaining thing was hearing the drivers complaining about the spoiler at the back because it was blocking part of their rearview mirror. Well, yeah, guys, that, that's what a big spoiler does. But you also have spotters. So it, it proved to be something that uh, a few guys were complaining about, but it made for excellent racing. And I kind of like the idea of them making the technical setup changes maybe when they get to the track. So there is no big advantage for having the big wind tunnel. I think that could make for some fun racing. Uh, are we going to see changes like that coming in full time in the future, do we think? Probably not, but if it were to happen, the fans would like it. So who knows? With Monster Energy so involved with uh, changing so many things, bringing in the stage racing and whatnot, they did a test run of it this weekend, and it proved to be very popular. So hopefully changes like that will be coming. And uh, the big one this weekend, of course, the 600. Yeah, that's going to be a fun race. We've got... Uh, some patriotic paint schemes that are going on to some of the cars. Uh, I saw that Jeffrey Earnhardt is back uh, running the race. He's a guy who, despite having the big last name, he still has to put together every program. He's still nickel and diming. He's going to run with some names of uh, some fallen military heroes on his car. We've also got uh, the other big story of the weekend was that uh, Chase Elliott is going to be running some of the races for uh, GMS racing because Spencer Gallagher was suspended for uh, the drug abuse policy. He Mm -hmm. was not cleared to run in Xfinity. So in the meantime, Chase Elliott will be going back and doing some of those. That's another big story to follow coming up. Um, But no, the Coca-Cola 600, it's the perfect way to end your Sunday because you start off with Monaco where you're feeling like Nick and you're all happy and dancing. And then you move into the Indy 500 and you sort of settle down And then you just finish the day with the Coca-Cola 600. It is the perfect way to spend Memorial Day being lazy on a couch. Uh, So 
before you disappear, Shay, I am going to ask you for a predi- prediction of who is going to win the Indy 500 and who is going to win the Coca-Cola 600. Uh, Indy 500, well, I'm going to stick with my guess from February. I'm going to say Elio gets his fourth. Um, okay. So the number three goes back to the victory lane. And for the Coca-Cola 600, oh, man, that one's hard. Um, I will go with Alex Bowman, the showman, Ooh. driving the number 88. Very interesting. Uh, Why not? (laughs) Shay Adam, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Uh, Shay will be back with us on next week's Midweek Motorsport and uh, then at Detroit for the uh, Chevrolet Sports Car Classic from Belle Isle. Isle. Uh, we'll be back with Midweek Motorsport again next Wednesday at 8pm here on RS1. Don't forget, tomorrow night at 8, there's another Toro Radio show. And tonight, uh, as soon as we have finished, Richard Crowell's here with the latest uh, Australian prototype series show. Uh, from now, for now, for me, Tim Gray, uh, and everyone here on Midweek Motorsport, it's good night. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.